Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you for joining me today and being so kind and understanding about the programming change. Done and Done will be coming to you longer episodes, more detailed episodes every other week. And today we are going to conclude talking about the trial of the murderer of Dominique Dunn, as well as its aftermath for good or ill. This episode will conclude Dominique's arc. And if this is the first time you're tuning in to Done and Done, welcome. And I encourage you to check back in your podcast player to find episodes two and eight to begin the thread of this story. Returning listeners, thank you again for being patient with this arc. This is tough stuff. I do want to acknowledge the intimate partner violence coming within this narrative, which is never okay. Please see your show notes for resources if you ever find they may come in useful. Thanks again for tuning in today as we complete the trial, hear the verdict, attend the sentencing, and experience the aftermath of the trial of John Sweeney. Let's investigate. Nick in episode eight, Judge Katz had declared a two-week break to think about the value of the testimony from both Dominique's mother, Lenny, and Lillian Pierce, an ex-girlfriend of John Sweeney's, who testifies to significant abuse at his hands, literally. About coming back into court from that two-week break, Dunn will write, Judge Katz ruled that the prosecution could not use the testimony of Lillian Pierce to show the jury that John Sweeney had committed previous acts of violence against women. He said he would allow Miss Pierce to take the stand only in rebuttal if Adelson put expert witnesses, meaning psychiatrists, on the stand to testify that Sweeney was too mentally impaired by emotions to have formed the intent to kill. Once Judge Katz ruled that, Adelson threw out his psychiatric defense. Later in the trial, when the possibility of putting Lillian Pierce on the stand was raised again by Stephen Barshup, Katz ruled that the prejudicial effect outweighed the probative value. The jury would never know of Lillian Pierce's existence until after they had arrived at a verdict. That's strike one. Dunn continues writing about strike two. Judge Katz also ruled that Lenny's testimony about Dominique's coming to her in hysterics after Sweeney first beat her on August 27th could not be used by the prosecution during the main case. The judge once again agreed with Adelson that the prejudicial effect of the testimony outweighed its probative value. And he told Barshup not to mention the incident in his primary case. He said he would decide later in the trial whether her story could be used to rebut a mental impairment defense for Sweeney. Strike three is worse. Dunn continues. Judge Katz agreed with Adelson that all statements made by Dominique to her agent, her fellow actors, and her friends regarding fear of John Sweeney during the last five weeks of her life must be considered hearsay and ruled inadmissible as evidence. It was not an auspicious opening to the trial. Friends, this is bad. The testimony of Lillian Pierce being out has the prosecutor reworking his case from the get-go. Stephen Barshop is good, though. 
he is going to define some succinct points in his opening. Dominic will write, he began with a description of the participants. Sweeney, 27, 6 foot 1, 170 pounds. Dominique, 22, 5 foot 1, 112 pounds. He gave a rundown of the charges in two incidents. The assault on Dominique on September 26th and the murder on the night of October 30th. He described how Sweeney had walked out of Ma Maison restaurant at 8.30 that evening and proceeded on foot to the house where he argued with Dominique and strangled her. He said that Dominique was brain dead there at the scene of the strangulation, despite the fact that she was kept on the life support system at Cedar sinai until November 4th. He said that the coroner would testify that death by strangulation took between four to six minutes. Then he held up a watch with a second hand and said to the jury, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to show you how long it took for Dominique Dunn to die. For four minutes, the courtroom sat in hushed silence. It was horrifying. I had never allowed myself to think how long she had struggled in his hands thrashing for life. A gunshot or a knife stab is over in an instant. Strangulation is an eternity. The only sound during the four minutes came from Michael Adelson and John Sweeney, who whispered together the whole time. The Dunns, as a whole family unit, being in the courtroom for every minute of the trial really does annoy Michael Adelson. Dunn will write, Her daily presence in the courtroom annoyed Adelson throughout the trial. Defense lawyers in general don't like jurors to see the victim's family. Friends of ours had advised us to leave town until the trial was over. The organization known as Parents of Murdered Children advised us to attend every session. It is the last business of your daughter's life. A father of a young girl stabbed to death by a former boyfriend said to me on the telephone one night. We sat in the front row behind the bailiff's desk in full view of the jury. Lenny in the aisle in her wheelchair, Alex Griffin and his girlfriend and I. We were within six feet of John Sweeney. As the weeks crept by, the boys became more and more silent. It seemed to me as if their youth was being stripped away from them. In the row behind us sat representatives from parents of murdered children. Some had been through their trials. Others were awaiting theirs. Many of Dominique's friends came on a daily basis. So did friends of ours and friends of the boys. There were also representatives from Women Against Violence, Against Women, and from Victims for Victims, the group started by Teresa Saldana, an actress who was brutally stabbed a few years ago and survived. If any member of the Dunn family cries, cries out, rolls their eyes, exclaims in any way, he will be asked to leave the courtroom, we were told by the judge at the behest of Adelson. Your Honor, Alex Dunn had tears in his eyes, Adelson called out one day. When Sweeney took the stand, Alex and Griffin changed their seats in order to be in his line of vision. Adelson tried to get them put out of the courtroom for this. We were intimidated, but never searched. How easy it would have been to enter with a weapon and eradicate the killer if we had been of that mind. As the last week approached, Alex said one morning, I can't go back anymore. I can't be there where Sweeney is. The trial is tough on the family, super tough, and it's super tough on Dominique's friends as well. They will continue to deliver love, 
and value and worth to their beloved friend Dominique all the way through the trial. Dominique will write about this. Dominique's friends Brian Cook and Denise Dennehy flew in from Lake Forest, Illinois, to testify about the time, five weeks before the murder, when Sweeney attempted to choke Dominique after their night on the town. She had escaped from her house that night by climbing out a bathroom window and driving her Volkswagen to the home of an artist friend called Norman Carby. Lenny was in New York at the time. Carby, appalled by the marks of attempted strangulation on her neck, had the presence of mind to take photographs. The pictures were the prosecution's prime exhibit of the seriousness of the assault. Adelson belittled the pictures. There was, he said, a third picture in the same series showing Dominique laughing. Carby explained that Dominique had a reading that morning for the role of a battered child on Hill Street Blues. Carby said he told her that at least she wouldn't have to wear any makeup for it, and that had made her laugh. One of the snitches appeared in the courtroom. He was the one who claimed Sweeney had said he thought he had the police believing him he had not intended to kill Dominique. He claimed further that Sweeney had asked him, Have you ever been with a girl who thought she was better than you? Snitches are known to be unreliable witnesses whom jurors usually dislike and distrust. This man's dossier, forwarded by the prison, depicted a disturbed troublemaker. His arms were tattooed from his shoulders to his wrists. Stephen Barshop decided to dispense with his revelations. He was not put on the stand. On one of the color pictures of the autopsy, there was a bruise on Dominique's shoulder, which gave rise to a disagreement. No one was quite sure if it had been incurred when she fell to the ground after being strangled, or if it had been caused by the life support system, or if it was a result of the autopsy. Adelson was determined that the jury not see the photograph with the bruise, and the arguments went on endlessly while the jury waited in an adjoining room. Judge Katz solved the matter with a pair of scissors provided by Velma Smith, the court clerk. He simply cut off the picture below the neck so that only the actual strangulation marks were visible to the jury. Deputy Frank D'Amelio, one of the first to arrive at the scene of the crime, testified on the stand that Sweeney had said to him, Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I'd choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I just lost my temper and blew it again. I wondered then, and I wonder still, what that word again meant. Did it refer to one of those other times he attacked Dominique? Or Lillian Pierce? Or is there something else in this mysterious past that had not yet come to light? Sweeney had no car and no driver's license, an oddity for a young man totally dependent on wheels. And although he had worked as a head chef in one of the most prestigious restaurants in the city, he was nearly totally without funds. Furthermore, an informant at Ma Maison told Detective Johnston of another former girlfriend, then somewhere in France, against whom Sweeney had committed at least one act of violence. Nick is being forged in the fire of this trial, and the heat is just never taken off him, the family, Dominique's friends. Dunn will continue writing. As Stephen Barshop arrested his case, Judge Katz delivered another devastating blow to the prosecution. He agreed with a request from Adelson that the jury be allowed to consider only charges of manslaughter and second-degree murder, thus acquitting Sweeney of first-degree murder. In asking Katz to bar a first-degree murder verdict, Adelson argued, 
There is no premeditation or deliberation in this case, and Katz agreed. Barship argued that the jury should decide whether there was sufficient premeditation or deliberation. He said that Sweeney had enough time to consider his actions during the period, up to six minutes, according to the coroner's testimony, that it took him to choke Dominique. Katz emphasized that Sweeney had arrived at Dominique's house without a murder weapon, although he knew that Sweeney's hands had nearly killed Lillian Pierce and that his hands had nearly strangled Dominique five weeks before he killed her. He also cited the fact that Sweeney had made no attempt to escape. Rarely do 12 people on a jury agree. Most verdicts are compromises. If this jury had had the option of first-degree murder and were in a dispute, they could have compromised at second degree. With first degree ruled out, if there was a dispute, their only compromise was manslaughter. Detective Harold Johnston was in the courtroom that day. He believed this was a case of first degree murder, just as we did. Means of escape and means of method have nothing to do with premeditation, he told us. An informant at Mamezan had told us that just before Sweeney left the restaurant to go to Dominique's house on the night he murdered her, he had ordered two martinis from the bar and drunk them. We felt that Sweeney must have decided that if he couldn't have Dominique, he wasn't going to let anyone else have her either. Harold Johnston had become a friend over the year, since the night he rang the doorbell of Lenny's house on Crescent Drive at two in the morning to tell her that Dominique was near death at Cedars-Sinai. He had also questioned Sweeney on the night of the murder. He told me in the corridor outside the courtroom that day that the judge's ruling had made him lose faith in the system after 26 years on the force. I mean, that's some bad courtroom administration. Adelson will continue to manipulate the judge and the jury throughout the remainder of the trial. Dunn will write, One day Adelson's wife and little boys came to the trial. As to offset his unpleasant image in front of the jury, Adelson elaborately played father. Now don't you talk, he admonished them, waving his finger. Several times, Judge Katz's mother and father also came to observe the proceedings. They were seated in special chairs set up inside the gate by the bailiff's desk and whispered incessantly. Invariably, Katz showed off for their benefit. On one occasion, after both Barshup and Adelson had finished with the witness David Packer, the actor who was visiting Dominique at the time of the murder and who called the police, Judge Katz started an independent line of questioning about eyeglasses that had not been introduced by either the prosecution or the defense. Did David Packer wear them? Did he have them on the night he saw Sweeney standing over Dominique's body? The questions advanced nothing and muddied what had gone on before. A photographer from People Magazine appeared in court one day, weighed down with equipment. I happened to know him. He said he'd been sent to take pictures of our family for an article that his magazine was doing on the trial. Neither Griffin nor Alex wished to be photographed, but the photographer stayed in the courtroom and took pictures of the session with Sweeney and the lawyers. At the lunch break, the judge signaled to the photographer to see him in his chambers. Later, out in the parking lot, I ran into the man. He told me he had thought the judge was going to ask him not to shoot during the session. Instead, the judge said he wanted his eyes to show up in the pictures and had tried on several different pairs of glasses for the photographer's approval. Adelson had never intended to have Sweeney take the stand. However, 
when he had to throw out his psychiatric defense to keep the jurors from knowing about Sweeney's previous acts of violence against Lillian Pierce, he had no choice but to put the accused on. Sweeney was abjectly courteous, addressing the lawyers and judges, sir. He spoke very quietly and often had to be told to raise his voice so that the jurors could hear. Although he wept, he never once became flustered, and there was no sign of the rage he exhibited on the day Lillian Pierce took the stand. He painted his relationship with Dominique as nearly idyllic. He gave the names of all of her animals, the bunny, the kitten, the puppy. He refuted the testimony of Brian Cook and Denise Dennehy and denied that he had attempted to choke Dominique after their night on the town five weeks before the murder. He said he'd only tried to restrain her from leaving the house. He admitted they had separated after that, and that she had the locks changed so that he could not get back in the house, but insisted that she had promised to reconcile with him, and that her refusal to do so was what brought on the final attack. He could not, he claimed, remember the events of the murder, which prompted Barshop to accuse him of having selective memory. After the attack, Sweeney said he had entered the house and attempted to commit suicide by swallowing two bottles of pills. However, no bottles were ever found, and if he had swallowed pills, they did not have any apparent effect on his system. One of the toughest parts of any trial is watching a defense team slander the victim. This is commonplace in murder trials, and John Sweeney's trial is no exception. Dunn writes, from the beginning, we had been warned that the defense would slander Dominique. It is part of the defense premise that the victim is responsible for the crime. As Dr. Willard Galen says in his book, The Killing of Bonnie Garland, Bonnie Garland's killer, Richard Heron, murdered Bonnie all over again in the courtroom. It is always the murder victim who is placed on trial. John Sweeney, who claimed to love Dominique, whose defense was that this was a crime of passion, slandered her in court as viciously and cruelly as he had strangled her. It was agonizing for us to listen to him, led on by Adelson, besmirch Dominique's name. His violent past remained sacrosanct and inviolate, but her name was allowed to be trampled upon and kicked with unsubstantiated charges by the man who killed her. Look at her friends, I wanted to scream at the judge and jury. You've seen them both on the stand and in the courtroom. Brian Cook, Denise Dennehy, Melinda Bitten, Kit McDonough, Erica Elliott, and the others who have been here every day. Bright, clean-cut, successful young people. That is what Dominique Dunn was like. She wasn't at all the person whom John Sweeney is describing. But I sat silent. When Dominique's friends closed up her house after the funeral, her best friend, Melinda Batan, came across a letter Dominique had written to Sweeney, which he may or may not have received. The letter had been filed away and forgotten. In the final days of the trial, Melinda remembered it one day when a group of us were having lunch together. Stephen Barship introduced it in his rebuttal, and as the court reporter Sally Yerger read it to the jury, it was as if Dominique was speaking from beyond the grave. Selfishness works both ways, she wrote. You are just as selfish as I am. We have to be two individuals to work together as a couple. I am not permitted to do enough things on my own. Why must you be a part of everything I do? Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you so jealous of every scene partner I have? 
Why must I recount word for word everything I spoke to Dr. Black about? Why must I talk about every audition when you know it's bad luck for me? Why do we have discussions at 3 a.m. all the time instead of during the day? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals? You insist on going to work with me when I have told you it makes me nervous? Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The person you think you love is not me at all. It is someone you have made up in your head. I am the person who makes you angry, who you fight with sometimes. I think we only fight when images of me fade away and you are faced with the real me. That's why arguments erupt out of nowhere. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you, and I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you're going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great. When we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. Throughout Stephen Barship's closing argument to the jury, when he asked them to find Sweeney guilty of murder in the second degree, the maximum verdict available to them, Judge Katz sat with a bottle of correction fluid, brushing out lines on something he was preparing. Later, we learned it was his instructions to the jury. I thought, if he isn't listening, or is only half listening, what kind of subliminal signal is that sending to the jury? During Adelson's final argument, on the other hand, he gave his full attention. This will be the toughest day of the trial, said Stephen Barshup on the morning of Adelson's final argument. Today you will hear Adelson justify murder. We had grown very close to Stephen Barshup during the weeks of this trial and admired his integrity and honesty. You don't have to sit through it, you know, he said. But we did, and he knew we would. Once all the testimony, heard or unheard, by the jury is in, now comes the waiting part. And again, Tina Brown really does know Dominic is something special, encouraging him to keep a journal and write it all down. He is really able to capture what a father's tormented heart is feeling. Dunn will continue. I lost count of how many times Adelson described Sweeney to the jury as an ordinary, reasonable person, as if this act of murder were an isolated instance in an ordinarily serene life. Every time he said it, he separated the three words, ordinarily reasonable person and underscored them with a pointing gesture of his hand. We, who had seen every moment of the trial, knew of 13 separate instances of violence, 10 against Lillian Pierce and 3 against Dominique. The jurors at this point were still not even aware of the existence of Lillian Pierce. Through an informant at Mamezan, our family also knew of other acts of violence against women that had not been introduced in this case but we sat in impassive silence as Adelson described the strangler again and again as an ordinarily reasonable person. He returned to his old theme. This was not a crime, he told the jury. This was a tragedy. It didn't matter that he knew it wasn't true. They didn't know it wasn't true, and he was only concerned with convincing them. He talked about that old-fashioned thing, romantic love, he made up dialogue and put it in the mouth of Dominique Dunn. I, Dominique, reject you, Sweeney, he cried out. I lied to you, Sweeney. We were sickened at his shamelessness. Leaving the courtroom during a break, I found myself next to him in the aisle. 
you piece of shit, I said to him quietly so that no one could hear. His eyes flashed in anger. Your honor, he called out, may I approach the bench? I continued out the corridor where I told Lenny what I had done. That was very stupid, she said. Now you'll get kicked out of the courtroom. No one heard me say it except Adelson, I said. When the judge calls me up, I'll lie. Say I didn't say it. Everybody else is lying. Why shouldn't I? It's his word against mine. Stephen Barshop appeared. Is he going to kick me out, I asked. Barshop smiled. He can't kick the father of the victim out of court on the last day of the trial with all the press present, he said. Then he added, but don't do it again. (laughs) Judge Katz drank soft drinks from styrofoam cups as he read the instructions to the jury explaining second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter. Later, after the sentencing, the jury foreman, Paul Spiegel, would say on television that the judge's instructions were incomprehensible. During the eight days that the jury was out, deadlocked, they asked the judge four times for clarification of the instructions. And four times, the judge told them that the answers to their questions were in the instructions. And now the family's waiting. It is the hardest part. Dunn is now living at the Bel Air home of Martin Milanis, who had returned east after his wife Katie's death to complete post-production work on a new miniseries. The jury had been out for over a week, and we knew they could not understand the instructions. Lenny, Griffin, Alex, and I were terribly edgy, and one evening we went our separate ways. I paced restlessly from room to room in the Manilis house. I hadn't looked at television that summer except to occasionally see the news, but I suddenly picked up the remote control unit and flicked the set on. I froze at the voice I heard. There on television was Dominique screaming, What's happening? I had not known that Poltergeist was scheduled on the cable channel, and the shock of seeing her was overwhelming. I felt as if she were sending me a message. I don't know what's happening, my darling. I screamed back at the television set, and for the first time since the trial started, I sobbed. The next day, the verdict came in. The waiting was endless. Joseph Shapiro, the Mamezan lawyer, regaled reporters with an account of an African safari in the veldt where the native guides serving his party wore a black tie. One of the courthouse groupies said that three buzzes to the clerk's desk meant the verdict had been reached. Five minutes before the jury entered, we watched Judge Katz sentence a man who had robbed a flower shop in a nonviolent crime to five years in prison. Sweeney entered, clutching his Bible, and sat a few feet away from us. Mrs. Sweeney sat across the aisle with Joseph Shapiro. The room was packed. A pool television camera, reporters, and photographers filled the aisles. The jury entered and the foreman, Paul Spiegel, delivered two envelopes to the bailiff to give to the judge. Katz opened the first one envelope, then the other, milking his moment before the television camera like a starlet at the Golden Globes. Then, revealing nothing, he handed the two envelopes to his clerk, Velma Smith, who read the verdicts aloud to the court. The strangulation death of Dominique Dunn was voluntary manslaughter, and the earlier choking a misdemeanor assault. There was a gasp of disbelief in the courtroom. The maximum sentence for the two charges is six and a half years. 
and with good time and work time, the convict is paroled automatically when he has served half his sentence without having to go through a parole hearing. Since the time spent in jail, between the arrest and the sentencing counted as time served, Sweeney would be free in two and a half years. I am ecstatic, cried Adelson. He embraced Sweeney, who laid his head on Adelson's shoulder. Shapiro clutched Mrs. Sweeney's hand in a victorious salute, but Mrs. Sweeney of the lot of them had the grace not to exult publicly that her son had just gotten away with murder. Then Adelson and Shapiro clasped hands, acting as if they had freed an innocent man from the gallows. Not content with his victory, Adelson wanted more. Probation, he cried, as we sat there like whipped dogs and watched the spectacle of justice at work. I felt a madness growing within me. Judge Katz excused the jury, telling them that even though other people might agree or disagree with the verdict, they must not doubt their decision. You were there, you saw the evidence, you heard the witnesses. He knew, of course, that they would be hearing from the press about Lillian Pierce in minutes. He told them that justice had been served and thanked them on behalf of the attorneys and both families. Could not believe I had heard Judge Katz thank the jury on behalf of my family for reducing the murder of my daughter to manslaughter. Rage heated my blood. I felt loathing for him. The weeks of sitting impassively through the travesty that we had witnessed finally took their toll. Not for our family, Judge Katz, I shouted. Friends behind me put warning hands of caution on my shoulders, but reason had deserted me. Katz looked at me aghast, as if he were above criticism in his own courtroom. You will have your chance to speak at the time of the sentencing, Mr. Dunn, he said. It's too late then, I answered. I will have to ask the bailiff to remove you from the courtroom, he said. No, I answered. I'm leaving the courtroom. It's all over here. I took Lenny's wheelchair and I pushed it up the aisle. The room was silent. At the double doors that opened into the corridor, I turned my back. My eyes locked with Judge Katz's, and I raised my hand and pointed it at him. You have withheld important evidence from this jury about this man's history of violence against women. The jury foreman, when asked later by the press what finally broke the deadlock, replied on television, A few jurors were just hot and tired and wanted to give up. The trial was over. Sentencing was set for November 10th. As you can imagine, the news does break and there is an uproar about the verdict. Outrage fills the airwaves, the newspapers, and now all of Sweeney's history is coming out, as well as what the jury did and did not get to hear. As you can also well imagine, Judge Katz is heavily criticized. There is a poll done by a local television station afterward. The poll consists of both prosecutors and criminal defense lawyers. Katz ties for fourth worst judge in Los Angeles County. Dunwell write, several days after the verdict, I returned to the courthouse to retrieve from the district attorney the photographs and letters and videotapes of the television shows that Lenny had lent him. The receptionist said I would find Stephen Barshop in one of the courtrooms. As I passed courtroom D, out of habit, I looked in the window. At that instant, Judge Katz happened to look up. I moved on and entered courtroom C, where Barshop was busy with another lawyer. The doors of the courtroom opened behind me and Judge Katz's bailiff, Paul Turner, who had wrestled Sweeney to the ground several months earlier, 
asked me to go out into the hall with him. What are you doing here, he asked me. He was stern and tough. What do you mean, what am I doing here, I replied. Just what I said to you. I don't have the right to be here? There's been a lot of bad blood in this trial, he said. I realized that he thought, or the judge had thought, that I had come there to seek revenge. Then Stephen Barshup came out into the corridor, and the bailiff turned and left us. There is a month between the verdict and the sentencing, and the family will attempt to pick up the pieces of their lives after this all-consuming event. Dunn will write about this. According to Proposition 8, the Victim's Bill of Rights, the next of kin of murder victims have the right to take the stand at the sentencing and plead with the judge for the maximum sentence. We were told that Adelson intended to cross-examine us if we did this. We were also told that Adelson, in order to get Sweeney released on probation that day, intended to put on the stand psychiatrists and psychologists who would testify that Sweeney was nonviolent. And we were told that Adelson intended to show a videotape of Sweeney under hypnosis, saying he could not remember the murder. On the day of sentencing, pickets protesting the verdict, the judge, and Mamezan marched and sang on the courthouse steps in Santa Monica. Courtroom D was filled to capacity, extra bailiffs stood in the aisles, and among the standees at the rear of the room, a young man called Gavin de Becker sat next to the bailiff's desk and made frequent trips back to the judge's chambers. De Becker provides bodyguard services for political figures and public personalities. Throughout the several hours of the proceedings, John Sweeney remained hunched over, his face covered by his hands so unobtrusive a figure that he seemed almost not to be there. Two of Sweeney's sisters took the stand and asked for mercy for their brother. Mrs. Sweeney described her life as a battered and beaten wife. Griffin took the stand and presented Judge Katz with a petition that had been circulated by Dominique's friends. It contained a thousand signatures of people protesting the verdict and asking for the maximum sentence. Lenny spoke, and I spoke. We were not cross-examined by Adelson. No psychiatrist or psychologist took the stand. No videotape of Sweeney saying he could not remember the murder was shown. But a whole new dynamic entered courtroom D on that day, and it dominated everything else. The outrage of Judge Burton S. Katz over the injustice of the verdict arrived at by the jury. He mocked the argument that Sweeney had acted in the heat of passion. I will state on record that I believe this is a murder. I believe that Sweeney is a murderer and not a manslaughterer. This is a killing with malice. This man held on to this young, vulnerable, beautiful, warm human being that had everything to live for with his hands. He had to have known that as she was flailing to get oxygen, that the process of death was displacing the process of life. Judge Katz then addressed Sweeney. You knew of your capacity for uncontrolled violence. You knew you hurt Dominique badly with your own hands and that you nearly choked her into unconsciousness on September 26th. You were in a rage because your fragile ego could not accept the final rejection. He said he was appalled by the juror's decision over Sweeney's first attack. The jury came back. I don't understand for the life of me. Was simple assault, thus taking away the sentencing parameters that I might have on a felony assault. 
He called the punishment for the crime anemic and pathetically inadequate. Having got the verdict, we felt he had guided the jurors into giving. He was now blasting them for giving it. He went on and on. It was as if he had suddenly become a different human being. However, all of his eloquence changed nothing. The verdict remained the same, manslaughter. The sentence remained the same, six and a half years, automatically out in two and a half. Surrounded by four bailiffs, Sweeney rose, looking at no one, and walked out of the courtroom for the last time. He was sent to the minimum security facility at Chino. Gavin DeBecker pursued us down the hall. He said Judge Katz would like to see me in his chambers. Lenny declined, but I was curious, as was Griffin. DeBecker led us back to Katz's chambers. Bert, he said, tapping on the door, the Duns are here. Judge Katz was utterly charming. He called us by our first names. He talked at length about the injustice of the verdict and his own shock over it, as if all of this were something in which he had played no part. He said his daughters had not spoken to him since the verdict came in. He gave each of us his superior court card and wrote on it his unlisted phone number at home and his private number in the chambers so we could call him direct. What, I thought to myself, would I ever have to call him about? Back in the crowded corridor again, I was talking with friends as Michael Adelson made his exit. He caught my eye, and I sensed what he was going to do. In the manner of John McEnroe leaping over the net in a moment of largesse to exchange pleasantries with the vanquished, this defender of my daughter's killer made his way across the corridor to speak with me. I waited until he was very near, and just as he was about to extend his hand, I turned away from him. There were some reactions in the news and the press. Michael Addison was asked in an NBC television interview if he thought Sweeney would pose a threat to society when released from prison in two and a half years. He pondered and replied, I think he'll be safe if he gets the therapy he needs. His rage needs to be worked upon. Judge Katz, when asked the same question by the same interviewer, answered, I would not be comfortable with him in society. Stephen Barshop told a newspaper reporter, He'll be out in time to cook someone a nice dinner and kill someone else. Paul Spiegel, the jury foreman, in a television interview, called the judge's criticism of the verdict a cheap shot. He said the judge was concerned over the criticism he himself had received since the trial and was trying to place the blame elsewhere. Spiegel said he felt that justice had not been served. He said the jury would have certainly found Sweeney guilty if they had heard all the evidence. If it were up to me, he said, Sweeney would have spent the rest of his life in jail. To conclude this part of the story, Nick will write, None of us regrets having gone through the trial or wishes that we had accepted a plea bargain, even though Sweeney would then have had to serve seven and a half years rather than two and a half. We chose to go to trial, and we did, and we saw into one another's souls in the process. We loved her, and we knew she loved us back, knowing that we did everything we could has been for us the beginning of the release from pain. We thought of revenge, the boys and I, but it was just a thought, no more than that, momentarily comforting. We believe in God and in ultimate justice, and the time came to let go of our obsession with the murder and proceed with life. Lenny, the following year, will co-found an organization called the California Center for Family Survivors of Homicide. It is now known as Justice for Homicide Victims. 
Lenny's work was honored before her death by then-president George H.W. Bush at the White House. Nick will return to writing The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, which has mostly been lost during this time. Before Nick leaves town, though, on his last day in Los Angeles, he will make two stops and writes about them. I had said my farewells to all, knowing I had experienced new dimensions of friendship and family love. I was waiting for the car to drive me to the airport. Outside, it was raining for the first time in months. Through the windows, I could see the gardeners of the house where I had been staying in Bel Air. They were watering the lawn as usual, wearing yellow slickers in the insistent downpour. There was plenty of time. I told the driver to take me to Crescent Drive first. I wanted to say goodbye to Lenny again. I knew what an effort it had been for her to put herself through the ordeal of the trial. She was in bed watching Good Morning America. I sat in her wheelchair next to her bed and held her hand. I'm proud of you, Lynn, I said to her. I'm proud of you, too, she said to me, but kept looking at David Hartman on television. On the way out, I took a yellow rose from the hall table. I want to make one more stop, I said to the driver. We went out Wilshire Boulevard to Westwood. Past the Avco Theater Complex, the driver made a turn into the Westwood Cemetery. I'll be just a few minutes, I said. Dominique is buried near two of her mother's close friends, the actresses Norma Crane and Natalie Wood. On her marker, under her name and dates, it says loved by all. I knelt down and put the yellow rose on her grave. Goodbye, my darling daughter. And that is how Nick's first Vanity Fair piece, Justice, ends. But this is really only Nick's beginning. From this trial, the seeds are planted in Nick's brain about how the trials of the privilege and the protected go. John Sweeney's trial is a brutal training ground to learn about all the things that happen, the tricks of a defense team, from holding or manipulating evidence to shining up the accused, to terrible judges with private motives. We will see all of these recurring themes and more in our continuing journey of Done and Done. I do have a few follow-ups from the story. I've heard from many of you about Judge Katz. He makes all of us angry. After the trial, Nick will say this, I ruined him and I feel happy that I ruined his career. Within a year, he goes from superior court to juvenile court, to traffic court, and to no court. And that was all me. I saw the power I had. Katz's career is going to tank, but Dominic and Katz will face off one more time, this time in the trial of O.J. Simpson. At the time, Nick is appearing on a lot of nighttime shows with their programming to talk about the day's events of the trial. News programs are calling whoever they can get to fill a seat sometimes, but Dominic Dunn during the O.J. Simpson trial is the one you want. And one night after the trial concludes for the day, Dominic Dunn will show up for his appearance on Larry King. Dominic will walk into the green room and there, in a terrible memory from the past, is Judge Burton S. Katz. Dunn walks in and immediately walks out, finds a production assistant and says, so sorry, not going to be able to go on. The production assistant asks a few questions and says, please wait here just a moment, Mr. Dunn. Katz is getting walked out of the building 30 seconds later and will no longer appear on Larry King. Dominic shouting from the rooftops 
about the verdict in this case will make a positive effect in another woman's life. This is a remarkable story. There's a man in Florida, and he has to make an emergency doctor appointment. While in the waiting room, there's a copy of an older issue of Vanity Fair, the March 1984 issue, to be exact. The man has never read Vanity Fair, would never read Vanity Fair, but has to kill a little bit of time in the waiting room. What piece does the man begin reading? The article Justice. This man is horrified because his daughter is dating a man now whose name is John Sweeney, who is a chef. Could this be the same man? This fellow will reach out to both Griffin and Nick to validate this. Griffin and Nick are able to warn him about the danger of John Sweeney to women and encourage his daughter to get into a safer place. John Sweeney will eventually change his name. He's living somewhere and doing something now, still protected by the people who've given him cover for a while. Nick, for his part, will look to Dominique as his guardian angel. He says, it was the worst thing I could have ever imagined happening in my life, and it has happened. The positive thing about it, it led me to a new area of life, of becoming interested in justice, something that I never gave five seconds of thought to. Dominique's last words to Nick were, I love you, Daddy, and he's grateful that he always has that. Nick, in his work with families of victims, has talked to so many families that are left feeling regret and anguish about the last words they had with their own child or maybe didn't have. The Dunn family really does grow so much closer together through this experience. Nick will say that he and Lenny become closer than they ever were in their marriage. One night they're driving home from a day at the trial, and Lenny, after all the trauma, all the lies, all the divorce, Lenny will say to Nick, do you have any idea how much you've changed? And Nick will say, yes, I do. I do. And then they look at each other and have a very real moment of love. Again, this piece of writing will launch Dunn's career, his debut of being a voice for Vanity Fair. His writing, his work really does capture the attention of a reader. He's going to find his voice. He will use that voice as loudly as he can to call out injustice wherever he sees it, every single time. Thank you so much for listening and spending your time with me today on Done and Done. Thank you again for your kind ratings and reviews and for telling your friends you are the very best. I hope you come back in two weeks again to Done and Done, where shoe leather meets stardust. We have so many more stories to tell. Have a wonderful week, friends. And until we meet again, keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.